Hey, everybody. I'm Joe Weaver, and this is Speaking of Race. I'm here with my colleagues, Eric Peterson. This is Eric. How are you doing? There's Eric and Jim Binden. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? Hanging in there. So today we're going to be talking about the historic debate between what's referred to as monogenism and polygenism. So last time, Jim discussed his graduate training with physical anthropologists who argued for the biological reality of race. And in the middle of that discussion, uh, he introduced the term polygenism. And he introduced a guy named Carlton Kuhn. Now, we're not going to actually talk about Carlton Kuhn today because he's part of the 20th century. But we do want to go back to the 19th century and explain where these polygenist ideas really began to heat up, especially in the United States. So this today's talk is about the fight between polygenists and monogenists about 150 years ago. It was, it was a fight indeed. So let's <laughs> define these terms first, right? So the first one that we want to talk about is monogenism. Monogenism is the idea that all humans come from a single common origin, that all of the races are related. And this derives originally from the second chapter of Genesis with Adam and Eve being the progenitors of the, of the whole species and therefore every race coming from the same group. Right. Okay. So that's monogenism. Monogenism, single origin, everybody coming from the same basic ancestors. How about polygenism? Using the same flawless logic, polygenism, uh-huh. <laughs> polygenism means multiple origins, and it literally means originally that the races came from separate creations. And most 19th century polygenists believed that they were actually separate species, not just separate races within our species. Today we use it in a, in a much looser sense, referring more to deep ancestral lines going back maybe hundreds of thousands, if not more, years in, in history. We use what? The term polygenism? The, yes. We do? Yeah. To refer to people other than Like Carlton Kuhn. Oh. Wait, and there are genomic polygenists today. Ah, you mean there are people today who still believe polygenism is a good idea and are interested in trying to... They would not label themselves polygenists, but they are, in fact, by virtue of what they are selling. Got it. So they're interested in trying to use genetics to substantiate not completely separate origins of human groups, but very deep origins that we know are not necessarily correct. Now that we kind of have a sense of what these terms are, what's, what's the point? Why are we talking about these old 19th century ideas right now. I, mean, I think that one of the things we probably should establish is that these ideas are even older than the 19th century, but something important happens in the middle of the 19th century. Actually, it starts in the 18th century. The Haitian Revolution, I think uh, historians want to say, is one of the most important events that really kickstarts the kind of polygenism that we're talking about with the insistence that people of different races are actually completely unrelated to each other, are different species. The Haitian Revolution comes at the heels of the French Revolution, in some ways is started by the French Revolution. But you have an entire part of an island, anyway, part of Hispaniola, becomes uh, completely dominated by former slaves or people who were freed, but they're of African descent and then have been living in the Caribbean for a long time. And it sends shockwaves through Europe. They intentionally throw off white rule. They do this explicitly. And in Britain, the reaction is a renewed call for abolition. In the United States Constitution, there was already written a provision. Essentially, the slave trade was to end in 1808. But that wasn't that strongly enforced before the beginning of the 19th century. 
in around 1803 or 1804, people like Wilberforce began to argue that, in fact, all slave trade should not just be stopped across the British Empire, which, of course, was the largest empire, but should be actively enforced by the British Navy. So in 1807, Wilberforce famously gets the Slave Trade Act put out of Parliament. And about 30 years later, 25 years later, uh, there's what's called the Act of Abolition in 1833. And that's when the, the British Empire formally makes all slavery everywhere in the empire illegal. Although it doesn't do a very good job of explaining exactly what that means to make all those things illegal. So at least they were doing it. Yeah, they're among the first, though not the first. They're among the first major empires to call for abolition. Cool. So what does this have to do with polygenism, right? So perhaps we should telescope back out for a second and explain why we're talking about these ideas in the first place. And I'm going to take a stab at that, which is that polygenism as a concept, the idea that human racial groups come from distinct origins, you could perhaps imagine a world where that idea might be sort of inert, but it has been used historically to justify slavery, to justify scientific racism. And so even though people don't use those words very much today, in many ways, that's the historical foundation of the kind of blatant racism that we still see today. And ideas even like that racial groups have differing innate athletic ability. That all traces back to the idea of polygenism, the idea that races are somehow inherently different from each other, right? Well, both the polygenists and the monogenists were highly engaged with the idea of a racial hierarchy. It didn't really matter whether you believed that the races were single origin or multiple origin. There were many uh, monogenists who supported slavery, just as there were polygenist abolitionists. And so we really can't make that tie between these two schools of thought about the origin of races and the nature of their beliefs about the different races. Fair enough. Then again, the reason why we care about and think polygenism is something we should talk about is because it's pernicious, right? I mean, it's, it's an idea that's done a lot of damage historically to racial equity. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that. Uh, I think, too, that when we talk about polygenism as a formal scientific theory, it really comes out of the 18th century and even a little bit in the 17th century, which we can talk about in a, in a future episode. But a corner gets turned, especially after the Haitian Revolution, where white scientists begin to say, we don't think it's actually even possible for people of African descent to rule themselves. And more and more of the scientific ideas get tied up with sort of showing that there are permanent species difference at the intellectual level as well as at the physical level between whites and everybody else in the entire world. There's um, that perniciousness. Yeah, that's exactly, that would, pernicious would be the right word right there. There were some whites in Britain who wanted to stamp out the sort of increasing levels of discussion about polygenism. In the 1830s, they found the Aboriginal Protection Society, which is in London. Thomas Hodgkin, his name is also immortalized because he identifies Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, but Hodgkin's and some of his wealthy friends start the Abolition Protection Society, in order to point out that even though the act of abolition gets passed in 1833, that it's not the case all over the British Empire that whites are suddenly overnight treating non-whites fairly. And so they continue to keep pressure on Parliament and even on the Crown to try to demonstrate that all races are essentially equal, or if they don't care about equality, they at least want to demonstrate that white people shouldn't oppress 
other groups. They support, for instance, the famous expedition led by a guy named Mungo Park, who has one <laughs> of the best names in the history of science, to find the, the mouth of the Niger River. Uh, he gets to go on two expeditions. They both fail miserably. But they're, they're funded by uh, the Abolition Protection Society in part to show that Africans aren't as backwards as the polygenists and just regular folks in England might believe. So getting back to British abolition in the early 19th century, people did not like this across the pond in the United States. And that's partly because we were deeply embroiled in slavery at that point. Our economy was dependent upon slavery. And even though we were a nation of people who were supposedly equitable, according to our Constitution, we in the United States really needed a way to justify the fact that we were not, in fact, a nation all created equal or at least all treated equally with the same rights. And so monogenism coming across the pond was threatening to a lot of people in the United States who had very vested sort of moral, personal, and political and economic interests in not being abolitionists themselves. Yeah, you bring up a good point. In the British monogenic community, one of the most outspoken members was a man named James Cowles Pritchard. Pritchard um, did his work on skulls back in the very early 19th century, and by the 1840s, he wrote one of the most massive books on what began to be called the natural history of mankind. Pritchard was an ardent monogenist, and actively argued, using the best science of the day, that there was no real difference between whites and any other racial group. And that was essentially the dominant opinion, the dominant scientific opinion in Britain and pretty much throughout the rest of Europe. But you're right, in the United States, those ideas, though at first they were accepted in the 18th century, by the middle of the 19th century, really the 1830s, in the 1840s, they began to be um, loudly rejected. Thank goodness we have a historian here. I know. Right? In the 1840 census was another turning point. Um, in the 1840 census, there was debate on whether we should classify people by race at all. The census did um, include the same racial categories as it had always included, but there was this group that in, in Haiti were being called quadroons or octoroons, they were essentially mulattoes. They were people of mixed race, and they were supposed to classify themselves by how much blackness they had in them. In the United States, this was potentially going to be adopted in the 1840 census. This brings up a lot of fears in whites in the United States because they think, oh my goodness, are there a lot of multiracial people in the United States? And that made them very, very nervous. Yes, in the 1840 census, the mixed-race individuals labeled mulattoes were connected with a, a variety of vital statistics that were being collected for the first time. And when the summaries were done, it was found that among the dark-skinned individuals, including the mulattoes, there was much higher degrees of insanity and sickness and all kinds of uh, damaging problems. And this was thought to be due to the African heritage. And it, it was found among uh, African Americans living in the North as well. Uh, much of this was the result of really bad statistical techniques and incredibly poorly uh, collected data. 
but it was ultimately part of the argument that was used to annex Texas as a slave state. So it actually entered into American legislation in a very real way using this bad data. And in 1843, in the the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal, which is today called the New England Journal of Medicine, a very prominent journal, an article appeared called The Mulatto, a Hybrid, the probable extermination of the two races if whites Phew. and blacks are allowed to intermarry. Uh, this was a widely read and widely distributed article. It happened to be written by a medical man, an MD, named Josiah Clark Knott, who at the time was located in Mobile, Alabama. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we should talk more about Knott in a minute. So Eric has a great story about Morton and skulls. I'll turn it over to him. But suffice it to say that... Skull measurements were a big deal around this time, right? One of the many scientific or quasi-pseudoscientific things people were doing around this time was to attempt to find a body part or a facet of biology that could prove once and for all that people of African descent were somehow different and at this point inferior to people of non-African descent. And so skull measurement was one of the big ones. Morton is a uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania physician Um, He initially has a career where he travels all over the place, but eventually he settles in Philadelphia and then basically never leaves again. But he has friends all across the growing United States and Europe, and he has them send him examples of skulls, especially of native peoples. And in 1839, he publishes the Crania Americana, where he collects skulls from both North and South America. And I recently found out he even had some skulls from men who get killed during the Seminole Wars. So he actually has skulls with bullet holes in them in his uh, skull collection. Which How is many skulls are we talking here? Over a thousand? Over a thousand in, in the American Golgotha, yeah. Well, even just from the Americas? No, no, that, in, that includes That's skulls from right? all over, yeah. So it was the largest skull collection at the time that we by, know of, Yes, right? by far. By far, right. Yeah, it was like he had a whole skull museum maybe in his basement, which mm, is not creepy. creepy to think about. At first, though, he was just trying to do um, measurements not necessarily to prove the, exactly the same thing that he would later on. He wasn't necessarily trying to rank races, but he was trying to show that each race was so different from every other race that it should effectively count as a separate species. When you fold what Morton was doing in with this fear about hybridization, about making mulattoes, you then get this kind of hurricane that becomes extremely racist science that comes out of the United States, all connected with physicians who did their work in Philadelphia and who personally knew Morton. So there is this wheel of polygenists with Morton as the hub of the wheel. Uh, Samuel Cartwright is one of the most famous ones. Uh, He's in South Carolina for a while. Um, And there are two brothers, one in Louisiana and one in Alabama, the Knott brothers, Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Actually, why don't we talk about Morton? We never actually talked about how Morton did this. How did Morton do his measurements? He first started using mustard seeds, and that is the technique that he trained his assistant in. And his assistant apparently was a major part of the problem in a number of the bad measurements that occurred in the earlier publications. He used mustard seeds to do what? To fill the inside cranial cavity where the brain sits inside the skull. Turn the skull upside down, pack it with your measuring device, in this case mustard seeds, and then you 
dump it out and measure the volume that that displaces. Yeah, what does that tell you then? Not a hell of a lot. <laughs> Supposedly, it, you could infer how big a person's brain had been when it had been inside that skull, right? Well, it, it tells you the size of the hole inside the skull. It doesn't tell you a hell of a lot about anything else, yeah. That's an important point. But the assumption at the time was that it could tell you a whole heck of a lot. Well, that's another interesting case because a lot of people have argued that Morton believed that there was clear-cut r- intelligence rankings based on brain size. And it is also clear from his writing that he, in fact, thought that brain size was part of an element, but it was brain shape, perhaps even more importantly than brain size. Even he understood that it wasn't just about bigger is better. Well, that's good, to Morton's credit, I guess. So getting back to the measurements. So we started out by filling these skulls with mustard seed to figure out essentially the volume that a cranium could hold. He trained his research assistant to do this too. And then he progressed to a lead shot, which was less compactable and more standardized. Not the greatest technique, but a a decent technique for measuring this volume. So he replaced the seeds with the lead shot. Right. And then what? And then John Michaels in 1986 measured them with plastic balls. And that's also the technique that was used by Lewis in, in his work in the early part of the 21st century. It's amazing uh, how the scrutinized these skulls have been. It's amazing how unscrutinized they've been if you stop and think about the import of this and the import of the role that they played in types of mankind. The major handbook of race for the mid-19th century, which Eric is going to tell us about. So Morton dies. He dies prematurely. And there's a little bit of a fight over what's going to happen with the skulls. But the most important thing that happens after Morton dies is that that network of all these polygenist thinkers, both in the United States and Europe, is at risk of falling apart. And so the person that jumps in to hold that network together is Josiah Clark Knott, the Mobile, Alabama physician that we talked about a second ago. The one where I kept doing that thing that I'm trying to hold myself back from doing this You time. want to do it? Go no. do it again. No, no, it's played out at this point. Bum, bum, bum. Um, the reason the reason that I'm emphasizing not in the first place is because not is a key person at the University of Alabama. He's a key, very very key person in the era that we're talking about right now, and he's also a key part of Eric's research. I guess so. Yeah, you count you count as the not expert. So, uh, not who did graduate from the medical college at the University of Pennsylvania, also the same place that Morton is from. And the same place that most of the upper class really accomplished physicians and surgeons came from in the United States, not rushes in and remakes all of those connections of Morton's. Probably most significantly, not a physician, but one of the skull suppliers to Morton is a guy named George Glidden. Now, George Glidden is British, but he's working as an American vice consul in Egypt, which is a, a British holding, but the Americans have an interest there. And Glidden and Knott uh, strike up an idea that they want to essentially do an anti-Pritchard. They want to write a book that puts Pritchard's monogenist work that was so respected in Britain to rest. And they want to overcome Pritchard's influence with their own polygenist work. That's what Jim just referred to a second ago. The book that comes out in 1854 is called Types of Mankind. And there are actually 14 different contributors to that book. But the whole thing is really held together by this relationship between Knott and Glidden. 
Not is the skulls guy. He takes over from Morton. But he knows a lot more um, than just the skulls. Glidden is the guy who works on languages and archaeology. And in Egypt has become familiar with a lot of the now despoiled um, archaeological sites in Egypt. And uses that not only to supply skulls to Morton and then not. But also he takes pot shots at the traditional biblical narrative of when things could have potentially happened in the Bible. Glidden is one of the first people um, to say that he thinks that the entire biblical chronology is just completely wrong. And therefore, most of the Bible, at least the early parts of the Bible, can be safely ignored by scientists. So it's very interesting that one of the most full-throated early enunciations of the notion that science should be completely secular and should reject biblical accounts when doing science comes from a guy who's doing it in service of polygenism, which we would now find racially repugnant. I always have found that a little bit ironic. So Types of Mankind is a tome. It is a big, big, fat book. Over 800 pages. And it cost a lot to produce at that time. It's very pretty. Um, it has some full-color, multi-page pull-out artwork, maps, and things. Uh, in fact, the two most prominent of those are contributed by the sort of superstar of geology at the time, Louis Agassiz, who is uh, one of the best-known geologists in the world at the time. He's the guy who comes up with the notion of ice ages. He's Swiss-born. He speaks French. He's friends with people in the Académie de Sciences, the, the big French um, science organization. But uh, he's actually enticed to come to Harvard, which is definitely batting down at that time for a big-name geologist from Europe. And at Harvard, um, he is, again, enticed by not to contribute to this book, Types of Mankind, where he writes essentially, I guess we'd call it the preface. It's a, a big Uh, introductory lecture that he puts at the beginning of the book that sort of sets the tone for it. So you really get this powerhouse crew writing Types of Mankind in 1854. You get not the physician who has control of all Morton's skulls. You get Agassiz, the respected geologist who's come up with the notion of ice ages. And then you get Glidden, who's an expert at hieroglyphics. He also knows Hebrew, and he's able to um, analyze all these archaeological sites across the Middle East. Agassiz is somebody who uh, jumps out in the history to me because, let's face it, I'm a personality person, not necessarily a historian myself. And one thing that's really interesting about him is that being from Europe at the time, he was a squarely kind of steeped in monogenism, right? But when he came to the U.S. for the first time in his papers, in a letter that he wrote back, I believe, to his mother, is that right, Eric? Um, about his travels to the United States, he describes in great detail um, his encounter with an African-American porter. It was the first time he had seen someone in the flesh of African descent. And the way he describes it in that letter, he was so struck by the profound differences in how this person looked as compared to how he and his Swiss colleagues looked that he, that sort of one encounter convinced him of the possibility that polygenism could be true. And really from that time onward, especially because he was getting more and more involved with Naughton Glidden and others, he became a a polygenist. So the reason we're talking about Types of Mankind is because it had a huge public and intellectual impact. Um, It was a highly anticipated book 
it was a tome. It was pretty. It was expensive, but that didn't stop people from buying it. So the Department of the Navy in the U.S. and the Department of Interior pre-ordered the book. They were some of the first purchasers of it. Is that right? I believe so. And it was translated into many, many languages and eventually made its way um, into the German proto-Nazi movement and had a huge impact on Nazism in Germany. Yeah, one of the ways that Knott got Agassiz involved in the project of Types of Mankind in 1854 is that Knott had given a paper at the American Association for the Advancement of Science meeting, which was held in Charleston, South Carolina in 1850. It was the third meeting they had, and they chose to hold it in Charleston in part because in 1850 it felt like the United States was splitting in half, which, of course, it would 10 years later. They held it there just to sort of highlight the commonalities between northern and southern scientists. So in the middle of this event that's supposed to be about congeniality and everybody getting together— uh, Josiah Knott gives a paper um, about the fact that that Jews haven't changed at all in the entire history of Judaism. This is something that he talked about with George Glidden. And his paper actually says, no matter where Jews have appeared on planet Earth, they're always clearly able to be picked out from the native people who live in that area. And for Knott, this was evidence that people just don't change. In fact, in the middle of that essay, he even says it just goes to show that the fact that Jews don't change no matter what environment they live in, no matter what culture they live in, although he doesn't use the word culture, but Jews don't change. Therefore, it's ridiculous to believe that black people and white people could possibly be related. At the end of that paper, Agassiz actually stands up. Uh, Agassiz is the star of the meeting. And he mostly says he agrees with Knott, but Knott put his lecture in such an aggressive manner that Agassiz feels forced into saying, even though I'm a polygenist now, I still think that when everyone dies, uh, you know, God accepts everyone as sort of all brothers under the skin. But while we're alive, I guess we're not really related to one another. So that's how Agassiz actually gets dragged into the project in 1854. It's kind of a crazy story. Yeah. Now that we've sort of established how polygenism came to be, we maybe need to telescope back out and think about the broader impacts that that has had. Did polygenism just go away after types of mankind? What happened then? No, it it definitely didn't go away, uh, although many popular sources claim that when Darwin published On the Origin of Species in 1859, that was kind of the death knell of, of polygenism because that gives us the mechanism by which species, new species arise, and so we can see that all creatures ultimately derive from a single origin, and creatures as closely related as the races of man would clearly be of a single origin. Uh, However, there were still many people who promoted a polygenist uh, notion. The one that comes most closely to mind is uh, Ernst Haeckel, who derived the different races of man from different apes. That's how different he thought the races were, and yet he was the primary promoter of Darwinism in Germany. So he he was an evolutionist, but he still had very polygenic ideas, uh, and this is 1899, 40 years after Origin of Species. I think people look at um, Charles Darwin's Descent of Man, and in the seventh chapter of Descent of Man, Darwin takes on the notion of race head-on. 
And in fact, he even says in that chapter, I really wish the debate between monogenists and polygenists would just sort of die a quiet death somewhere. Um, And I think from that line, people take the stature of Darwin today in the 20th and 21st centuries as an indicator that once Darwin says this debate is silly, we should all be monogenists, that then everybody was a monogenist. But in fact, um, many of the people who read Darwin in the 1870s when Descent of Man comes out actually derided Darwin for hewing way too closely to James Cowles Pritchard's monogenism in the early part of the 19th century, which for the brand new school of anthropology founded in London in the 1860s, Darwin's work seemed like it was too almost religious for them. And the first anthropologists at the Anthropological Society of London openly disavowed Darwin's work uh, as being again, sort of too conservative, a throwback to early 19th century ideas. Instead, um, mostly under the leadership of a guy named James Hunt, who was um, a speech therapist by training, but was very loud and a very good arguer, uh, the anthropologicals dedicated themselves to becoming an openly um, and aggressively polygenist organization. And again, this is after Darwin has already done stuff. This is in the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s. They pitted themselves against the ethnologicals. The ethnologicals were the older group, and the ethnologicals were actually headed up by people that we would see as some of the major evolutionists of the day, including Thomas Henry Huxley, uh, famously called Darwin's Bulldog. So here we have Darwin's bulldog advocating for monogenism and using Darwin's work. And his society, the Ethnological Society of London, is losing membership to the Anthropological Society of London, who is openly uh, espousing polygenism after Darwin has already written these things. So in the immediate wake of Darwin, it's clear that no one was convinced by Darwin's monogenism, and in fact, polygenism gained strength. And as Joe said a moment ago, types of mankind only increased in sales after Darwin wrote. One of the reasons for that isn't just polygenism, but because Knott and Glidden openly sort of make fun of the Genesis account and talk about how it's just not scientifically acceptable to use religious arguments in order to explain the world. And monogenism seemed like it was just a religious argument, just the old Adam and Eve story all over again. Polygenism seemed like the secular scientific story. So here we have again that bizarre, hard-to-describe phenomenon. Hard to describe because it's so different from the way things are now, perhaps, where um, what we would consider to be very racially conservative and racist ideas were associated at the time with being progressive and new and scientific rather than religious. Right. That's yeah, that's exactly right. And so also here we have the dark origins of anthropology, right? Early anthropology was completely preoccupied with this question of race and racism and polygenism versus monogenism. Um, Anthropology has many dark origins, many dark origin stories, but this might be one of the darkest. Yeah, in fact, it stayed ethnology and anthropology were literally split on those monogenist, polygenist lines really up until the 1890s. And then there was finally a single organization called the Royal Anthropological Institute. 
and the Royal Anthropological Institute just decided we're not going to care about those questions anymore, but didn't really resolve them, just said we're going to set that stuff aside for right now. But that wasn't really until the 1890s, and especially the Torres Strait expedition, which was in the late 1890s, before anthropologists said we're just not that concerned about questions of race. But again, I think it's important. Nobody ever said we're just going to be monogenists anymore and we're not going to be polygenists anymore. They simply said we're not going to talk about these issues anymore. So is that why polygenism never really went away? Sure. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, right? Maybe that's part of why it never really dissipated entirely. Yes, we continue to ignore it, and so it continues to creep back into whatever the current science of biology is that we're using to study human variation today. Right. So we opened today by talking about how we still see echoes of polygenism even among some human geneticists today right? Yeah. So full circle, here we are. It never circle. really went away. Speaking of which, next episode, we'll be talking about race in the wake of the Human Genome Project, where we will revive some of these polygenic ideas or show how they've been revived. We won't the, revive them. We'll show how yeah, they were revived. Show how they were revived <laughs> in, the, in the recent DNA analysis burst. So you've been listening to Speaking of Race with me, Eric Peterson, the historian. And me, Jim Binden, the physical anthropologist. And me, Joe Weaver, the cultural anthropologist slash heckler. Mm-hmm.